0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Shannon Prince about using metrics to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Shannon Prince, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you today. You're joining us from New York. I'm here south of Salt Lake City in Orem, Utah. And today we have an opportunity to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we'll be exploring that from a lot of different angles. But uh, I, I do want to hone in and focus on using metrics to support our DE and I efforts within organizations. As we get started, I wanted to share Shannon's bio with everybody. Dr. Shannon Prince is an attorney and legal commentator. She earned her doctorate in African and, Amer- and African American studies and her master's degree in English from Harvard University's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, her law degree from Yale Law School, and her bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College. She drafted uh, she drafted best practice language on on policing policies for the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, represented plaintiffs in CCGEF versus REL, a high-profile landmark education adequacy lawsuit, and is currently representing the Cherokee Nation in their lawsuit against pharmaceutical distributors and pharmacies for their role in the opioid crisis that the tribe is suffering. She is a member of her firm's Diversity Council and is a legal counsel on Legal Diversity Pathfinder. Her writing has been published in The Hill, Transition Magazine, Science, and Jezebel, among many other venues. And she has a book on anti racism forthcoming from Routledge called Tactics for Racial Justice. What a tremendous background that you have! Uh, it's a real honor and a Uh, Pleasure to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Anything else you want to share with listeners by way of your background uh, before we launch on in?
1: No, thank you. I appreciate that introduction.
0: Well, wonderful. So let's let's uh, dive right on in uh, and look at you know the the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I I think this is a topic that gets discussed a lot. I, I think most listeners probably recognize and understand the importance of DEI efforts and the value of diversity in organizations and all the connections in the research that shows how you know from a business case perspective a greater diversity equity and inclusion drives a whole range of positive organizational outcomes and better uh, decision making and innovation and better uh, bottom line performance, all of those things are true. And of course, there's also the human case that, you know, people are people and we need to treat them with dignity and respect. And we need to make sure that everyone feels like there's a place for them in our organization that they truly belong. So all of that, I'm going to, we're going to start kind of with this understanding and assumption that all of that is already understood, (laughs) Uh, even though that's a really wonderful and fun conversation to have in and of itself. But going from there, um, let's talk a little bit more specifically about anti-racism with the George Floyd moment and just all of the social strife and upheaval that's been uh that we've seen in the u.s over the last i mean really for, for a re- very long time but certainly over the last uh, 18 months um it it has kind of been at a heightened level i think uh, why is it important today for organizational leaders to genuinely and authentically focus on anti-racism efforts within their organizations
1: Well, one reason I think this moment is unique is because there's momentum that can be be, um, harnessed. For example, if we look at the civil rights movement, one of the reasons it took off was because all of a sudden there was a television in most people's homes and they could see the atrocities that were going on. They could see dogs being set on civil rights protesters. If we go back about a century earlier, One of the reasons that the abolitionist movement took off was the rise of photography and newspapers and railroads to get newspapers to people across the country so people could see pictures of someone like Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave. They could put faces and names to these abstract stories that they had been hearing about this oppression. And now we're in a similar media moment where because we all carry cameras in our pockets in the form of our phones, something like the horrible film of... George Boyd being murdered can be televised. The world watched that. The world was shocked. We're having this new civil rights moment. And leaders need to take advantage of that to make real change while the iron is hot.
0: Yeah. And I think part of it is the momentum, right? Like you said, and leveraging the moment to, to make uh, meaningful, sustained change. I also think about just the role of leaders in organizations in creating a space for their people to process all of this that's happening. Um, So, you know, I'm a middle-aged straight cisgender white dude. So I have all the privileges and, you know, I don't have, I'm not really part of any of those, those uh, marginalized groups. And so I can try to empathize and I can try to understand and recognize what people are going through. But the reality is that's not my lived experience. And so I can't fully understand it yet. I'm working with people who are, like that's their world. And they're, they're, so the visceral reaction that people are having um, in, in when these types of moments happen and when you see the, 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 the news or the videos or, or whatever, like I need to create a space where people can safely, in a genuine and authentic way, bring that to the workplace and be able to unpack it a little bit and process it. Um, because if I don't, Inevitably, it's going to impact my people. Uh, whether whether I tell them to check their personal life at the door and come in and just be professional and "quote unquote" professional and be you know come to work, that may be my mindset and that may be what I want my people to do. It, that's uh, that's silly and it's not going to happen. Like people bring like our our work life and our personal life, it all bleeds together. It all uh, impacts each other. And if someone is is deeply troubled and, and struggling with you know, say, racial injustice in the country, and there's no way for them to deal with it, uh, of course, that's going to impact them, that's going to impact the team, that's going to impact the organization. Uh, So how do we both build off the momentum of these types of moments, but also provide the support uh, within our organizations and our teams for those who uh, might be part of these marginalized populations that are struggling in these moments?
1: So in the anti-racist community we often talk about being colorblind and why you don't want to be colorblind because if you're blind to color then you're blind to mistreatment based on color but I also say it's important not to be color mum to not be afraid, to not be silent about race and racism and that can look all sorts of ways so for example a while back there was a hate crime at a synagogue, and I reached out to one of my Jewish colleagues and just sent her an email saying, I'm thinking of you at this time. And then when George Floyd was murdered, she reached out to me. And I think that when you're a leader in an organization, then you know that someone from a certain demographic is watching this atrocity that's gone on in their community say something, create an office culture where people do reach out to each other and support each other at those times. Check in with people about how they're feeling. I also think about the line from uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in which the ghost of Marley tells Scrooge money was just one part of business and you being a good businessman, mankind is your business. When we have to look at what is our full business and when we look at our mandates as organizations. So for example, I work for a law firm and our law firm has a proud history of doing social justice work and pro bono work. But we even reevaluated that in the wake of George Floyd's murder to say, how can we take this up another notch? Mankind is our business, and we particularly are in the justice business. What can we do as lawyers to promote racial justice? You can ask that same question of yourself as a teacher, as a doctor, and all sorts of different roles. And so it's also important just to be mindful of how race affects people's lived experiences. So as I said, I'm a lawyer. I'm an African-American woman. I know African-American men who practice criminal law. And a very common experience among African-American male criminal lawyers is walking into the courtroom with their white client who is the defendant, who is the suspect, and having the judge assume that they, the Black lawyer, are the suspect and that the white client is the lawyer. And so just being mindful of the fact that other people, based on their demographics, may be experiencing things that you aren't experiencing and supporting them through that, trying to mitigate against it, being not being color mom any anymore than we're not being colorblind
0: yeah I, I think that's very well said and, and one of the things that I know you talk about in your work is this idea of doing a racial justice audit. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and how leaders might go about conducting that within their organizations
1: Sure so I think these audits need to be both quantitative and qualitative What I mean by that is, First, you want to look at the demographics of who is in every role of your organization. Now, some companies are actually required to do this by law. They have to fill out EEO-1 reports, but even if you don't, you should still look at this data and you should make it public as a way of holding yourself accountable and allowing clients who want to support diverse businesses to find you if you have great results. But you want to make sure, for example, that people are not underrepresented based on race, and also that people of color are not concentrated at the least prestigious levels of your organization. Now, sometimes people say, well, I can't find any purple ballerinas to hire for my organization. Well, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's a recruitment issue. Sometimes maybe you're not reaching out to historically Black colleges and universities or tribal um, colleges, universities, or Hispanic-serving institutions. Sometimes it's the way you're marketing yourself. You're relying on your employees' word of mouth. And if you have predominantly white employees because of de facto uh, segregation, they're more likely to have predominantly white social circles. So the word may not be getting out to communities of color. And sometimes it's an issue of the pipeline and reality where they're just, you know, people of color are underrepresented in the field. But even that's not an excuse. You can participate in efforts and organizations designed to diversify the pipeline. So the first thing that you want to do is just look at where you are in terms of how the demographics of your organization match the demographics of your community. That can be your local community, if you are an organization that maybe has a footprint in one town. It can be the nation if you are an organization that has offices nationwide. Then you want to do a qualitative audit as well. So for example, you want to have someone who is in a leadership role listen to people of the affected demographic. So at my firm, for example, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, one of the senior partners sat down with all of us African American associates for a listening session. And the reason it's important for a person in a leadership role to do this is first of all, it signals that the organization sees racial justice as important. And secondly, a person in a leadership role has the formal authority to make any necessary changes based on what comes out in the listening session. Now you can do these one on one, you can take about an hour with each person you're going to do it in a private place and you're going to do it during work day because When you're asking for people's experiences in your workplace, they're trying to make the workplace better. And so that's not something that you should do on their personal time. That's something that they should be compensated for. Or you can have people gather as a group. In that case, you want to, you know, at least two and a half hours. And you probably want to be a trained outside moderator just to make sure that the conversation remains civil and on target. When you do a group audit, sometimes you may want to do it with just the demographic affected. So you may just want to bring in all your African-American employees or all your employees of color, or you may wanna have an additional listening session where everyone can participate and hear each other. And then when you ask people to participate, don't ask them in person, ask them indirectly so that if they want to say no, they can with no pressure. So ask with an email, with a text on Slack, et cetera. And then after you have this session, the most important thing is to follow through on what people said to show that it's not just about talk, it's about change. So one thing that came up at my firm, and it's a wonderful firm, is that sometimes uh, women of color associates, and this has happened to me, get mistaken for legal assistance. And one thing that happened in the wake of that audit with these listening sessions is that the firm began doing anti-bias trainings to help people deal with their implicit bias. And so have that qualitative audit, have that quantitative audit, figure out where you are, and then you can see how you can make your organization more racially just.
0: and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. I love those ideas. And and unless we really know where we're at, it's hard to set goals and to to start to move the needle in improving the situation. Right. And so having this ongoing assessment is just really key to making sure that, you know, again, we're holding ourselves accountable and we're making sure that we're making steady progress. Uh, nobody expects for us to, you know, bridge the gap and to fix everything overnight, but it, even though it's hard and it's complicated and it's, it, it takes long, sustained effort, that doesn't give us the an excuse to not do it. <laughs> uh, and and I feel like that's often how the, the conversation goes uh, in organizations and among executive teams and among leaders is an acknowledgement that, yes, this is important, but also, yes, this is incredibly messy. It's incredibly challenging. We're not really quite sure what we're doing or how to do it appropriately or effectively. We're worried about uh, how all of this is going to be perceived and blah, 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 right? All of, all of these things. And so what many organizations end up doing is whether it's their intention or not, they kind of undermine their own de efforts because they're really just giving lip service to it. Maybe they're convening some conversations, but that's about it. And they're not doing anything else to address some of the structural and systemic mechanisms at play that are allowing these problems to persist, right? And so we have to assess it. We have to understand it. We have to put goals in place, objectives, and then we need to work towards it. And over time, we can see a pretty marked difference in our organization. And I I think that's what most leaders are going to say they want, but it's not enough to say it. You have to actually do it and you have to put it forward as a priority with, you know, in terms of how, what you're saying to your people in a consistent way, um, but also the time, the energy, the money, the resources that you put behind it.
1: Absolutely. And hearing what you say reminds me of the fact that you have to have what are called SMART goals. So in organizational leadership, we talk about SMART goals, goals that are specific, measurable, assignable, realistic, and time-bound. And one example of a racial justice goal that was made by an organization is Este Lauder's commitment in the wake of George Floyd's murder, to making sure that there was population parity of Black employees at every level of its organization by the next five years. So that goal is specific. It's measurable. You can use a corporate census or quantitative audit to figure out how you're doing. It's assignable. You can assign it to your human resource managers, to your leaders, to your recruiters. It's realistic. As she said, this can take a while. They didn't say by next week, we're going to have population parity. They gave themselves five years. And then that brings in that last piece. It's time bound. But guess what? Once Estillado made that commitment, within the first five months, they had doubled their Black hiring.
0: Yeah, and, and the tremendous marked improvement, right, just because you're aware of where you're at, where the gaps are, and what, and then having a, a smart goal in place to figure out how you're going to try to tackle it and to achieve it. Very good, very good. One more thing I thought we could explore together. Uh, you kind of referred to it already, uh, or at least the idea of convening groups uh, to to provide support in times of particular struggle, um, but there's also this idea of affinity or employee resource groups. Um, how can those? What are those exactly, and why are they important? How can they be utilized to support DEI efforts in organizations?
1: Sure. So, affinity groups or employee resource groups, as they're also known, are wonderful resources. Basically, you extend an invitation to members of your community who have a certain affinity or shared background or interest. It can be maybe African Americans or Latinos or women or people with disabilities, veterans, and you bring them together to interact in it with each other and empower each other. And so. Uh, you may do things like group mentoring within your affinity group, where, say, you're a law firm, um, and this is one thing that my firm does in our Asian and Pacific American affinity group. We uh, have partners who do group mentoring, so they each take on a few of the Asian and Pacific American associates, and they break them down, so it's about three to four people per mentor meet regularly over Zoom and just give advice about how to succeed in a law firm. And that advice is culturally coded because it touches on things such as how to use your background as a resource, how if maybe you speak an Asian language, you can be pursuing clients abroad, but also how to mitigate against stereotypes that may affect Asian people. And I'm familiar with this group because my father is a black man of Chinese descent. So I'm also a member of this affinity group. But <laughs> For example, Asians often hit the bamboo ceiling where they're considered good at completing tasks, but not having the authority or the confidence, to be, the confidence to be leaders. And so, if you have an affinity group that's based around the needs of a certain community, you can teach people how to mitigate that. You can say, you know, there's the stereotype of Asians as quiet worker bees. So, you have to mitigate that by being a strip, or you may tell women, that there is a stereotype of women as just uh, prioritizing family over the office. And so it's important to assert your commitment to leaning in, whatever it may be. And then also those groups promote things like resources that are available for the community, Maybe there is a fellowship available for early career people who in the medical field who are retraining from being army veterans. Maybe there is a conference for Latino pediatricians. Maybe there is some career development program for deaf teachers. They make sure that people understand what resources are there for them And then also uh, they produce resources. So they may produce um, a black history program for the whole organization, or they may uh, be involved in recruiting more people of their demographic to the organization. Basically, they just become a hotspot for tools and techniques to bring people in, to help them stay, to help them rise, to help them thrive.
0: Yeah, I really, really love that. Great. Great ideas, uh, some really specific, relatively simple things that we can start to do uh, as we're trying to improve the DENI efforts within our organization in the, the context that uh, marginalized populations might find themselves in as they're trying to work in different organizations. And I really appreciate your your legal background that you're bringing to this as well as um, you know, just the, the broader social justice, uh, background uh, and, and I again coming back to your bio from the beginning I, I, you have such a tremendous <laughs> uh, scholarly and academic uh, pedigree in terms of your your uh, your doctorate and master's degrees in African and african American studies at Harvard uh, Yale law I mean uh, so wonderful y- your expertise is, is clearly um, uh, something that we should all be looking to as we're trying to to, to grapple with these difficult issues. And I would encourage listeners to, to reach out and get connected and to pick your brain if they're trying to figure out how to do this better uh, within their organizations. Um, As we get close to time to wrap up, I just wanted to see if you had any other uh, thoughts around how leaders can make sure that opportunities are being extended in racially just ways within their organizations, uh, how we can better support equitable mentorship and any of those kind of related issues.
1: So the first thing is to be aware of what's called affinity bias. People naturally seek out and aid those who remind them of themselves. And often what reminds you, what you see in someone else that reminds uh, you of yourself is their race and gender. And so in organizations, the senior roles disproportionately in America are held by white men. And often those white men, when they are looking for talented people to mentor or sponsor, they may think that they're doing so in a non-discriminatory way, but they often disproportionately nurture younger white men. And so just be aware that that may be a factor. Track who you mentor. Metrics are so important. And so when you are looking for a mentor, you or you're looking for someone to extend a new opportunity to look at all the junior people, analyze their performance and think, oh, you know, I I would have mentored Chum because He went to the same fraternity as me and he golfs and I golf and I see a lot of myself in him. But Tanya over here is also really talented. I want to make sure I'm not overlooking her. Make a list of the people you've mentored in the past. Have they disproportionately been from one race or one gender? Be cognizant of that and then diversify it some. And then also organizations shouldn't leave mentorship to chance. So don't just uh, let people kind of find mentors and let mentorship happen. It's wonderful if it does, but don't rely on that. Assign people mentors when they come into the organization. That's not going to result in an artificial relationship. Assign people based on things such as what they have in common. So at my firm, I have a master's degree in English. I was assigned to a published poet who has a doctorate in English. I'm a young woman of color. He is a middle-aged white man, and we got along swimmingly. Or assign people based on what they have to offer and what they need. So one partner or senior person might say, I'm the first person in my family to have this job. I had no clue about what everyone else seemed to know when I first did get on. I know how to nurture someone who's a first-generation person. So when that young first-generation person comes to your office, you would pair that person with that partner. And then when it comes to sponsorship, some organizations are beginning to use dashboards where instead of just thinking about who do I feel is ready for this big, ambitious, glamorous opportunity, you can look on a dashboard and see, these are the people who are qualified. These are the people who have done X, Y, and Z in the past. They're capable of it. And someone who may not have even been on your radar might be what, ready of that opportunity. So technology can help us too. But the main thing is you just want to be using metrics and tracking what you're doing and not just leaving it up to good intentions.
0: Yeah, very well said, Shannon. It has just been a real pleasure talking with you today. Uh, We've just scratched the surface, we could go on and on and on. And I would love to have you back anytime to continue the conversation. Before we wrap up today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, and then give us the final word on the topic for today.
1: Thank you so much. I'd be honored to come back anytime. I'm on LinkedIn as Shannon Prince. I am the odd millennial who otherwise does not have a social media presence, but I do have a firm page, my law firm page at Boy Schiller Flexner. And then my book can be found at uh, its page on the Rutledge website. Rutledge is R-O-E-T-L-E-D-G-E. And the book is called Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. And for listeners, if you want to buy it at a discount, just use the code FLY, all caps, 21, all one word. And my final thought I'll leave you with is it's important to, as I say, think of yourself as an ancestor, to recognize that just as the world that people lived in in the 1960s was a product of what abolitionists did in the 1860s and that the world I live in in this moment is a product of what civil rights activists did in the 1960s. The world the next generation will live in is a product of what we do now. So as a leader, don't just ask yourself, was today productive? Always ask yourself, was tomorrow impacted?
0: I love that so much. Thank you, Shannon. It has been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what she can do for you, what her firm can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. They can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.